Hi, can we? Let's sit down and somebody close the door. Thank you, Lauren. Are there chairs enough? If, if more people come in, we can bring chairs up. Okay, listen, hello. My name is Rita Sharon. I'm the director of the program, and I so welcome you all. We haven't been here since May, I think, or June. And um, um, we've been simply greatly looking forward to uh, hosting you again. Uh, many of you here are, are new Master of Science in Narrative Medicine candidates. Many of you are colleagues here at the Medical Center. Uh, there's some from UCSF and some from Hither and Yon. And as always, we look at our um, colleagues and we say, what a clearing this is. And there are rare places that can accommodate all of us clinicians, ethicists, poets, writers, deans of other medical schools, etc., who are here to talk about the ways in which healthcare and illness are saturated by and improved by a knowledge of what to do with stories. Um, I'm only here to introduce Nellie Herman, who's going to introduce our speaker. And it's Nellie who gets to introduce Chris Adrian uh, because they're both novelists. Thank you, Rita. Hi, everybody. Our speaker today, Chris Adrian, whom I am honored to introduce, is a pediatric oncologist and a fiction writer. For most of us, even hearing those two words, pediatric and oncology, together is difficult. They are words that should not go together. A person who chooses this specialty is choosing to go towards our deepest and most unanswerable questions, to be on the front line of life's most terrible moments, and to usher just as many people towards unimaginable grief as towards joy. A person who chooses this specialty must live the unexplainable on a daily basis, and, I imagine, must learn to embrace and enter the unanswerable questions in order to survive. Chris Adrian does this, and I am sure of this because I have read his work in his fiction. As a fiction writer in the Narrative Medicine program, it is often my job to encourage those who are not used to exercising their imagination to try out their muscles, to embark on the imaginative process and see where it takes them, to use the imagination as a tool towards understanding to exhibit and unleash its powers for processing questions and unimaginable things. This is why I'm in awe of Chris Adrian's work as well as the prospect of introducing him today. When I read his work, I feel like it demonstrates everything I ever tried to say in the classroom. Chris Adrian, I was gonna call him Dr. Adrian, but he gave me permission to call him Chris. Um, to quickly touch on his achievements, has an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a master's degree from Harvard University Divinity School. He has recently completed a fellowship in pediatric hematology oncology at UCSF and has been awarded a New York Public Library fellowship to spend this next year in New York. 
He has published three novels and a collection of short stories and is a frequent contributor to The New Yorker, which named him as one of the 20 under 40 writers to watch this past year. In all of his books, he has tackled profound and complicated subjects. The first novel, Gob's Grief, is set during the American Civil War and follows several characters as they build a machine designed to abolish death. The second, The Children's Hospital, is set in a hospital floating in a ruined world, its occupants the only survivors of another apocalyptic flood. And the third is a retelling of Shakespeare's Midsummer, Midsummer Night's Dream, set in Buena Vista Park in San Francisco. But more important perhaps than what he tackles in his work is the way he tackles it. If you read a handful of his short stories in a row, you will notice the following reoccurring elements. Illness, usually being suffered by children, grief, previous and present, doctors, often bumbling or unconfident, hospitals, anguish, struggle, war, all very tangible, real-world, serious things. You will also notice, woven throughout and popping up in surprising and insistent and always interesting ways, fairies and angels and spirits and disembodied voices, helping and harming and guiding and watching and witnessing all of the terribly human, terribly mortal activity going on. And throughout all his work is the always complicated and often delicately rendered and fiercely serious question of the nature of love. From his work, I learn again and again that the earthly facts are not enough in our world, that the imagination and the embrace of all else that we don't understand is crucial to our survival. Of course, he can say all of this better than I can, so I'm going to stop talking and let him talk. But first, I wanted to introduce him with some of his own words. Um, the following is a quote from a recent NPR show. The interviewer asked Chris about the power of story to be able to make sense of something incomprehensible. And here is, in part, his response. I think for me, I feel I ultimately always miss the mark. You know, it seems pathetically naive to think telling a story could really make everything all better, because that seems almost as pathetic as thinking telling a story could make an actual sick child better. It really, you know, it doesn't. The worst outcome that I deal with professionally when a is when a child dies. There's nothing that's gonna ever make that better. And so it's naive to think that something as simple as telling an emotionally resonant story would help. And yet, for me as a physician, the reason I think I can get up and go back to work every morning despite those outcomes is because those parents get up and go back to work. They go back to their regular lives. They love their remaining children and they get it together and get on with it. And they don't just live and they don't just survive. They live and they thrive in a way that is wonderful and mysterious to me. And just the simple fact or the privilege of getting to witness not just their trauma and their tragedy, but how much they love their children and how extraordinarily powerful, even though it can ultimately be helpless and powerless, that love is, it turns out to look a lot like what that target is that I'm always just missing in the fiction. So in that sense, it's not useless at all. It's fundamentally important. Um, thank you, Nellie, for the nicest introduction I've had in my life. Um, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you uh, to the Narrative Medicine Program. Um, it's uh, really neat to be here for someone like me being in a place like this, getting to do something like this is a little bit like a visit to Narnia. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, 
even getting and getting to be in the same room with Rita Sharon is uh, more than a little bit like getting to be in the same room with Bono. <laughs> um, so thank you again. I'm um, going to read a, a story for you. Uh, it, um, you know, I'll preface it just by saying I wrote it um, a while ago when I was a, a pediatric intern. Uh, and it is, uh, in a sense, it's about a patient, though the patient, um, I don't think if she read the story would recognize herself in it necessarily, but I, I guess in, in, in that sense it's about the, the idea of this particular patient who I met as an intern and was the first patient who I really made what I considered um, a dreadful mistake with. Um, uh, and it's called A Child's Book of Sickness and Death. My room 616 is always waiting for me when I get back, unless it is the dead of winter rotavirus season when the floor is crowded with gray-faced toddlers rocketing down the halls on fantails of liquid shit. They are only transiently ill and not distinguished. You earn something in a lifetime of hospitalizations that the rotavirus babies, the RSV wheezers, the accidental ingestions, the rare tonsillectomy that these sub-sub-sickies could never touch or have. The least of it is the sign that the nurses have hung on my door silver glitter on yellow poster board, Chase Indy. My father sells me in before he leaves. He likes to turn down the bed to tear off the paper strap from across the toilet and to unpack my clothes and put them into the little dresser. You only brought halter tops and hot pants, he tells me. And pajamas, I say, halter tops make for good access to my veins. He says he'll bring me a robe when he comes back, though he'll likely not be back. If you are the sort of child who only comes into the hospital once every ten years, then the whole world comes to visit, and your room is filled with flowers and chocolates and aluminum balloons. After the tenth or fifteenth admission, the people and the flowers stop coming. Now I get flowers only if I'm septic. But my Uncle Ned makes a donation to the Short Gut Foundation of America every time I come in. Sorry I can't stay for the H&P, my father says. He would usually stay to answer all the questions the intern du jour will ask. But during this admission, we are moving. The new house is only two miles from the old house, but is bigger and has views. I don't care much for views. This side of Moffat Hospital looks out over the park and beyond that to the Golden Gate. On the nights my father stays, he'll sit for an hour watching the bridge lights blinking while I watch television. Now he opens the curtains and puts his face to the glass, taking in a single deep look before turning away, kissing me goodbye, and walking out. After he's gone, I change into a lime green top and bright white pants and then head down the hall. I like to peep into the other rooms as I walk. Most of the doors are open, but I see no one I know. There are some orthopedic-looking kids in traction, a couple of wheezers smoking their albuterol longs, a tall, thin, blonde girl sitting up looking, sitting up very straight in bed and reading one of those fucking Narnia books. <laughs> she has CF written all over her. She notices me and says hello. I walk on past two big-headed syndromes and a nasty rash. Then I'm at the nurse's station and the welcoming cry goes up, Cindy, Cindy, Cindy. Welcome back, they say, where have you been? And Nancy, who always took care of me when I was little, makes a booby-squeezing motion at me and says, my little baby is becoming a woman. Hi, everybody, I say. See the cat. The cat has feline leukemic indecisiveness. 
He's losing his fur and his cheeks are hurting him terribly and he bleeds from out of his nose and his ears. His eyes are bad, he can hardly see you. He has put his face in his litter box because sometimes that makes his cheeks feel better, but now his paws are hurting and his bladder is getting nervous and there is this feeling at the tip of his tail that comes every day at noon. It's like someone's put it in their mouth and they're chewing and chewing. Suffer, cat, suffer. I am an ex-26-week miracle preemie. These days you have to be a 24-weeker to be a miracle preemie, but when I was born you were still pretty much dead if you emerged at 26 weeks. I did well except for a belly infection that took about a foot of my gut. Nothing a big person would miss, but it was a lot to one kilo me. So I've got difficult bowels, I don't absorb well, and I get this hideous pain and barf like mad and need tube feeds, and beyond that sometimes have to go on the sauce, TPN, Total Parenteral Nutrition, where they skip my wimpy little gut and feed me through my veins. And I've never gotten a pony despite asking for one every birthday for the last eight years. I'm waiting for my pick, you must have central access to go back on the sauce. When a child life person comes rapping at my door, you can always tell when it's them because they knock so politely and because they call out so politely, may I come in. I am watching the meditation channel 24 hours a day of string ensembles and trippy footage of waving flowers or shaking leaves, except late, late at night, when between 2 and 3 a.m. they show a bright field of, thar of stars and play a howling theremin when she simpers into the room. Her name is Margaret. When I was much younger, I thought the child life people were great because they brought me toys and took me to the playroom to sniff Play-Doh. But time has sapped their glamour and their fun. Now they're mostly annoying, but I am never cruel to them because I know that being mean to a child life specialist is like kicking a puppy. <laughs> We are collaborating with the children, she says, in a collaboration of color and shapes and words, a collaboration of poetry and prose. I want to say, people like you wear me out, honey. If you don't go away soon, I know my heart will stop beating from weariness, but I let her go on. When she asks if I will make a submission to their hospital literary magazine, I say, sure. I won't, though. I am working on my own project, a child's book of sickness and death and cannot spare thoughts or words for the Moffatier. Ava, the IV nurse, comes while Margaret is paraphrasing a submission, the story of a talking IV pump written by a seven-year-old with only half a brain, and bringing herself nearly to tears at the recollection of it. And if he can do that with half a brain, I say, imagine what I could do with my whole one. Sweetie, you can do anything you want, she says, so kind and so encouraging. She offers to stay while I get my pick, but it would be more comforting to have my 300-pound Aunt Mary sit on my face during the procedure than to have this lady at my side. So I say, no, thank you, and she finally leaves. I will return for your submission, she says, and it sounds much darker than I know she means it. The pick is the smoothest sailing. I get my morphine and a little versed, and I float through the fields of the meditation channel while Eva threads the catheter into the crook of my arm. I'm in the flowers, but also riding the tip of the, of the catheter, a la fantastic voyage, as it snakes up into my heart. I don't like views, but I like looking down through the cataract of blood into the first chamber. The great valve opens, I fall through, and land in daisies. I'm still happy groggy from Ava's sedatives when I think I hear the cat moaning and suffering, 
calling out my name, but it's the intern calling me. I wake in a darkening room with a tickle in my arm and look at Ava's handiwork before I look at him. The slim pick disappears into me just below the antecubital fossa. My whole lower arm is wrapped in a white mesh glove that looks almost like lace and would have been cool back in 1983 when I was negative two. Sorry to wake you, he says. Do you have a moment to talk? He's a tired looking fellow. At first, I think he must be 50. But when he steps closer to the bed, I can see he's just an ill-preserved younger man. He's thin, with strange hair that is not so much wild as just wrong somehow. <laughs> Beady eyes and big ears and a little beard, the sort you scrawl on a face along with devil horns for purposes of denigration. Well, I say I'm late for cotillion. He blinks at me and rubs his throat. I'm Dr. Chandra, he says. I peer at his name tag, Sirius Chandra, MD. You don't look like a Chandra, I say, because he's as white as I am. I'm adopted, he says simply. Me too, I say, lying. I sit up and pat the bed next to me, but he leans against the wall and takes out a notepad and pen from his pocket. He proceeds to flip the pen in the air with one hand, launching it off the tips of his fingers and catching it again with finger and thumb. But he never writes down a single thing they say. See the pony. She has dreadful hoof dismay. She gets a terrible pain every time she tries to walk, and yet she is very restless and can hardly stand to sit still. Late at night, her hooves whisper to her, asking, please, please, just make us into glue, or they strike at her as cruelly as anyone who ever hated her. She hardly knows how she feels about them anymore, her hooves, because they hurt her so much, and yet they are still so very pretty, her best feature, everyone says, and biting them hard is still the only thing that makes her feel any better at all. There she is, walking over the hill on her way to the horse fair, where she'll not get to ride the prairie wind, or play in the haunted barn, or eat hot buttered morsels of cowboy from a stand, because wise carnival horses know better than to let in someone with highly contagious dismay. She stands at the gate watching the fun, and she looks like she is dancing, but she is not dancing. Suffer, pony, suffer. What do you know about Dr. Chandra? I asked Nancy, who was curling my hair at the nurse's station. She has tremendous sausage curls and a variety of distinctive eyewear that she doesn't really need. I'm wearing her rhinestone-encrusted granny glasses and can see Ella Thims, another shortcut girl, in all her glorious, gruesome detail, where she sits in her little red wagon by the clerk's desk. Ella had some trouble finishing up her nether parts and so was born without an anus or vagina or a colon, or most of her small intestine and her kidneys are shaped like spirals. She's only two, but she's on the sauce also. I've known her all her life. He hasn't rotated here much. He's pretty quiet and pretty nice. I've never had a problem with him. Have you ever thought someone was interesting, I say? Someone you barely knew, just interesting in a way. Do you like him? You like him, don't you? Just interesting, like a homeless person with really great shoes, <laughs> or a dog without a collar appearing in the middle of a graveyard. Sweetie, you're not his type. I know that much about him. She puts her hand out, flexes it swiftly at the wrist. I look blankly at her so she does it again and sort of sashays in place for a moment. Oh, I say, welcome to San Francisco, she says. She sighs. Any way you can do better than that. He's funny looking, and he needs to pull his pants up. Someone should tell him that. His mother should tell him that. <laughs> Write this down under chief complaint, I have told him. I am sick of love. 
He flipped his pen and looked at the floor. When we came to the social history, I said my birth mother was a nun who committed indiscretions with the parish deaf mute. And I told him about my book, the cat and the bunny and the peacock and the pony, each delightful creature afflicted with a uniquely horrible disease. Do you think anyone would buy that, he asked. There's a book that's just about shit, I said. Why not one that's just about sickness and death? Everybody poops, everybody suffers, everybody dies. I even read the pony page for him and showed him the picture. It sounds a little scary, he said, after a long moment of pen tossing and silence. And you've drawn the intestines on the outside of the body. Clowns are scary, I told him, and everybody loves them. And hoof dismay isn't pretty. I'm just telling it how it is. There, Nancy says, you're curled. She says it like you're healed. Ella Thims has a mirror on her playset. I look at my hair and press the big purple button underneath the mirror. The playset honks and Ella claps her hands. Good luck, Nancy adds, as I scoot off on my IV pole because I have a date tonight. One of the bad things about not absorbing very well and being chronically malnourished your whole life long is that you turn out to be four and a half feet tall when your father is 6'4", your mother is 5'10", and your sister is six feet even. But one of the good things about being four and a half feet tall is that you are light enough to ride your own IV pole, and this is a blessing when you're chained to the sauce. <laughs> when I was five, I could only ride in a straight line and only at the pokiest speeds. Over the years, I mastered the trick of steering with my feet, of turning and stopping, of moderating my speed by dragging a foot, and of spinning in tight spirals or wide loops. I take only short trips during the day, but at night I cruise as far as the research building that's attached to, but not part of, the hospital. At 3 a.m., even the eggiest heads are at home asleep, and I can fly down the long halls with no one to see me or stop me, except the occasional security guard, always too fat and too slow to catch me, even if they understand what I am. My date is with a CFer named Wayne. He's the best-fed best CF kid I have ever laid eyes on. Usually they're blonde and thin and pale and look like they might cough blood on you as soon as smile at you. Wayne is tan with dark brown hair and blue eyes and big with a high, wide chest. He's pretty hairy for 16. I caught a glimpse of his big hairy belly as I scooted past his room. On my, on my fourth pass, I slowed each time and looked back over my shoulder at him. He called, called me in. We played a karate video game. I kicked his ass and then showed him the meditation channel. He's here for a tune-up. Every so often, the cystic fibrosis kids will get more tired than usual, or cough more, or cough differently, or a routine test of their lung function will be precipitously sucky, and they will come in for two weeks of IV antibiotics and aggressive chest physiotherapy. He is halfway through his course of tobermycin and bored to death. We go down to the cafeteria, and I watch him eat three stale donuts. I have some water and a sip of his tea. I'm never hungry when I'm on the sauce, and I am absorbing so poorly now that if I ate a steak tonight, a whole cow would come leaping from my ass in the morning. <laughs> I do a little history on him, not certain why I'm asking the questions, and less afraid as we talk that he'll catch on that I'm playing intern. He doesn't notice and fesses up the particulars without protest or reservation as we review his systems. My snot is green, he says, green like that. He points to my green toenails. He tells me that he has twin cousins who also have CF, and when they are together at family gatherings, he is required to wear a mask so as not to pass on his highly resistant mucoid strain of pseudomonas. 
That's why there's no camp for CF, he says. Camps for diabetes, for HIV, for kidney failure, for liver failure, but no CF camp, because we'd infect each other. He wiggles his eyebrows then, perhaps not intentionally. Is there a camp for people like you, he asks. Probably, I say, though I know that there is. And would have gone this past summer if I hadn't been banned the year before for organizing a game where we rolled a couple of syndromic kids down a hill into a soccer goal. <laughs> Almost everybody loved it, and nobody got hurt. Over Wayne's shoulder, I see Dr. Chandra sit down two tables away. At the same time that Wayne lifts his last donut to his mouth, Dr. Chandra lifts a slice of pizza to his. But where Wayne nibbles like an invalid at his food, Dr. Chandra stuffs. He just pushes and pushes the pizza into his mouth. In less than a minute, he's finished it. Then he gets up and shuffles past us, sucking on a bottle of water with bits of cheese in his beard. He doesn't even notice me. When Wayne has finished his donuts, I take him upstairs past the sixth floor to the seventh. I've never been up here, he says. He mock, I say. Are we going to visit someone? I know a place. It's a call room. A couple years back, an intern left his code cards in my room, and there was a list of useful door combinations on one of them. Combinations change slowly in hospitals. The intern's never here, I tell Wayne as I open the door. Imam kids have a lot of problems at night. Inside are a single bed, a telephone, and a poster of a kitten in distress, coupled to an encouraging motto. I think of my dream cat moaning and crying. I've never been in a call room before, Wayne says nervously. Relax, I say, pushing him toward the bed. There's barely room for both our IV poles, but after some doing, we get arranged on the bed. He lies on his side at the head with his feet propped on the nightstand. I am curled up at the foot. There's dim light from a little lamp on the nightstand, enough to make out the curve of his big lips and to read the sign above the door to the hall. In Italian, it says, abandon all hope, all ye you enter here. Can you read that? Yes. It says, I believe that children are our future. <laughs> That's pretty, he says. It'd be nice if we had some candles. He scoots a little closer to me and I stretch and yawn. Are you sleepy? Yes. No. He's quiet for a moment. He looks down at the floor across the thin, torn bedspread. My IV starts to beep. I reprogram it. Air in the line, I say. Oh, I shift a little closer to him in the bed while I fix the IV. Do you want to do something, he asks, staring into his lap. Maybe, I say. I walk my hand around the bed like a five-legged spider in a circle over my own arm, across my thighs, up my belly, up to the top of my head to leap off back to the blanket. He watches, smiling less and less as it walks up the bed, up his leg, and down his pants. See the zebra. She has atrocious pancreas oath. Her belly hurts her terribly. Sometimes it's like frogs are crawling in her belly, and sometimes it's like snakes are biting her inside just below her belly button, and sometimes it's like centipedes dancing with cleats on every one of their little feet. And sometimes it's a pain she can't even describe, even though all she can do on those days is sit around and try to think of ways to describe the pain. She must rub her belly on very particular sorts of tree to make it feel better, though it never feels very much better. Big round scabs are growing on her tongue, and every time she sneezes, another big piece of her mane falls out. Her stripes have begun to go all the wrong way, and sometimes her own poop follows her, crawling on the floor or floating in the air, and calls her cruel names. Suffer, zebra, suffer. 
Asleep in my own bed, I'm dreaming of the cat when I hear the team. The cat's moan frays and splits, and the tones unravel from each other and become their voices. And fully awake with my eyes closed, he lifts a mangy paw, saying goodbye. Dr. Chandras is a voice. I know it must belong to Dr. Snood, the GI attending. Tell me the three classic findings on x-ray in necrotizing enterocolitis. They're rounding outside my room, six or seven of them, the whole GI team, Dr. Snood and my intern and the fellow and the nurse practitioners and the poor little med students. Soon they'll all come in and want to poke on my belly. Dr. Snood will talk for five minutes about shit, mine and other people's, and sometimes just the idea of shit, a platonic ideal not extant on this earth. I know he dreams of gorgeous, perfect shit the way that I dream of the cat. Chandra speaks. He answers free peritoneal air and pneumatosis and a snap, but then he is silent. I can see him perfectly with my eyes still closed. His hair is all a who. His beady eyes are staring intently at his shoes. His stethoscope is twisted, crooked around his neck, crushing his collar. His feet turn in so his toes are almost touching. Upstairs with Wayne, I thought of him. Dr. Snood, too supreme a fuss budget to settle for two out of three, begins to castigate him. A doctor at your level of training should know these things. Children's lives are in your two hands. You couldn't diagnose your way out of a wet paper bag. Your ignorance is deadly. Your ignorance can kill. I get out of bed, propelled by rage, angry at haughty Dr. Snood and at hapless Dr. Chandra, and angry at myself for being this angry. Clutching my IV pole like a staff, I kick open the door and scream, scaring every one of them. Portal fucking air, portal fucking air. They are all silent, and some of them white-faced. I'm panting, hanging on now to my IV pole, and look over at Dr. Chandra. He is not panting, but his mouth has fallen open. Our eyes meet for three eternal seconds, and then he looks away. Later, I take Ella Thims down to the playroom. The going is slow because her sauce is running and my sauce is running, so it takes some coordination to push my pole and pull her wagon while keeping her own pole, which trails behind her wagon, like a dinghy from drifting too far to the left or to the right. She lies on her back with her legs in the air, grabbing and releasing her feet and turning her head to say hello to everyone she sees. In the hall, we pass nurses and med students and visitors and every species of doctor attendings and fellows and residents and interns, but not my intern. Everyone smiles and waves at Ella, or stoops or squats to pet her, or smile closer to her face. They nod at me and don't look at all at my face. I look back at her, knowing her fate. Enjoy it while you have it, honey, I say to her, because I know how quickly one exhausts one's cuteness in a place like this. Our cuteness has to work very hard here. It must extend itself to cover horrors ostomies and scars and flipper hands and hair lips and agenesis of the eyeballs, and it rises to every miserable occasion of the sick body. Ella's strange puffy face is covered, her yellow eyes are covered, her bald spot is covered, her extra fingers are covered, her ostomies are covered, and the bitter nose-tickling odor of urine that rises from her always is covered by the tremendous faculty of cuteness generated from some organ deep within her. Watching faces, I can see how it's working for her and how it stopped working for me. Your organ fails at some point. It fails for everybody, but for people like us, it fails faster, having more to cover than just the natural ugliness of body and soul. 
One day you are more repulsive than attractive, and the goodwill of strangers is lost forever. It's a small loss. Still, I miss it sometimes, like now, walking down the hall and remembering riding down the same hall ten years ago on my big wheel. Strangers would stop me for speeding and cite me with a hug. I can remember their faces, earnest and open and unassuming, and I wonder now if I ever met someone like that, where I could go with them after such a blank beginning. Something in the way that Dr. Chandra looks at me has that, and the child life people look at you that way too, but they've all been trained in graduate school not to notice the extra hit, or the smell, or the missing nose, or to love those things professionally. In the playroom, I turn Ella over to Margaret and go sit on the floor in a patch of sun near the door to the deck. The morning activity for those of us old enough or coordinated enough to manage it is the weaving of God's eyes. At home, I have a trunk full of God's eyes and pot holders and terracotta sculptures the size of your hand, such a collection of crafts that you might think I'd spent my whole life in camp. I wind and unwind the yard, making and then unmaking because I don't want to add anything new to the collection. I watch Ella playing at a water trough, dipping a little red bucket and pouring it over the paddles of a water wheel. It's a new toy, there are always new toys every time I come, and the room is kept pretty and inviting, repainted and recarpeted in less time than some people wait to get a haircut because some new wealthy person has taken an interest in it. The whole floor is like that except where there are pockets of plain beige hospital nastiness here and there, places that have escaped the attentions of the rich. The nicest rooms are those that once were occupied by a privileged child with a fatal syndrome. I pass almost a whole hour like this. Boredom can be a problem for anybody here, but I am never bored watching my gaunt yellow peers splash in the water or stacking blocks or singing along with Miss Margaret. Two wholesome Down syndrome twins, Dolores and Delilah Cuddy, who both have leukemia and are often in for chemo at the same time. I am in for the sauce, are having a somersault race above the, across the carpet. A boy named Arthur who has Cruzan syndrome, the bones of his skull have fused together too early. It's playing shoots and ladders with a girl afflicted with panda syndrome. Every time he gets to make a move, he cackles wildly. It makes his eyes bulge out of his head. Sometimes they pop out, then you're supposed to catch them up with a piece of sterile gauze and just push them back in. Margaret comes over after three or four glances in my direction, noticing that my hands have been idle. Child life specialists abhor idle hands, though there was one here a few years ago named Eldora who encouraged meditation and tried to teach us yoga poses. She did not last long. Margaret crouches down. They are great crouchers, having learned that children like to be dressed at eye level. And seeing my gods I have finished and my yarn tangled and trailing, asks if I have any questions about the process. In fact, I do. How do your guts turn against you and your insides become your enemy? How can Arthur have such a big head and not be a super genius? How can he laugh so loud when tomorrow he'll go back to surgery again to have his face artfully broken by the clever hands of well-intentioned sadists? How can someone so unattractive, so unavailable, so schlumpy, so low-panted, so pitiable, keep rising up a giant in my thoughts? All these questions and others run through my head, so it takes me a while to answer, but she is patient. Finally, a question comes that seems safe to ask. How do you make someone not gay? See the peacock. He has crispy lung surprise. He has got an aching in his chest, and every time he tries to say something nice to someone, he only coughs. 
His breath stinks so much that it makes everyone run away. And he tries to run away from it himself, but of course, no matter where he goes, he can still smell it. Sometimes he holds his breath just to escape it until he passes out, but he always wakes up, even when he would rather not. And there it is, like rotten chicken or old, old crab or hippopotamus slut. He only feels ashamed now when he spreads out his feathers, and the only thing that gives him any relief is licking a moving tire, a very difficult thing to do. Suffer, peacock, suffer. It's not safe to confide in people here, even when they aren't crying and they do cry. It's better to be silent or to lie than to confide. They'll ask you when you had your first period or your first sex, if you are happy at home, what drugs you've done, if you wish you were thinner and prettier, or that your hair was more shiny. And you may tell them about your terrible cramps or your distressing habit of having compulsive sex with homeless men and women in Golden Gate Park, or how you can't help but sniff a little bleach every morning when you wake up, or complain that you are fat and your hair always looks as if it has been just been rinsed with drool. And they'll say, I'll help you with that bleach habit that has debilitated you separately but equally from your physical illness, that dreadful habit that's keeping you from becoming more perfectly who you are. Or they may offer to teach you how the homeless are to be shunned and not fellated, or promise to wash your hair with the very shampoo of the gods. But they come and go, these interns and residents and attendings, nurses and child life specialists and social workers and itinerant tamale ladies, only you and the hospital and the illness are constant. The interns change every month, and if you gave yourself to each of them, they'd use you up as surely as an entire high school football team would use up their dreamiest cheerleading slut, and you'd be left like her, compelled by your history to lie down under the next moron to come along. Accidental, confidence was accidental confidences or accidentally fabricated secrets are no safer. Margaret misunderstands. She thinks I am fishing for validation. She is a professional validator with skills honed by a thousand hours of role playing. She's been both the perilous young lesbian and the supportive adult. But there's no reason to change, she tells me. You don't have to be ashamed of who you are. This is a lesson I learned long ago from my mother, who really was a lesbian, after she was a nun, but before she was a wife. Before she was a wife. I did not give it up because it was inferior to anything, she told me seriously. The same morning she found me in the arms of Shelley Wu, my neighbor and one of the few girls I was ever able to entice into a sleepover. We had not, like my mother assumes, spent the night practicing tender heated frittage. We were hugging as innocently as two stuffed animals. But it's all right, my mother kept saying against my protests. So I knew not to argue with Margaret's assumption either. It makes me pensive, having become a perceived lesbian. I wander the ward thinking, hello, nurse, at every one of them. <laughs> I sit at the station, watching them come and go, spinning the big, lazy Susan of misfortune that holds all the charts. I can imagine sliding my hands under their stylish scrubs, not toothpaste green like Dr. Chandra's scrubs, but hot pink or canary yellow, or deep sea blue printed with daisies or sun faces or clouds, or even embroidered with dancing hula girls and pressing my fingers in the hollows of their ribs. I can imagine taking off Nancy's rhinestone granny glasses with my teeth or biting so gently on the ridge of her collarbone. The charge nurse, a woman from the Philippines named Jory, sees me opening and closing my mouth silently and asks if there is something wrong with my jaw. I shake my head, there's nothing wrong. It's only that I'm trying to open wide enough 
for an imaginary mouthful of her soft brown boo. If it's easy for me to do, to imagine the new thing, then, it, then is he somewhere wondering what it would feel like to press a cheek against my scarred belly or to gather my hair in his fists? When I was little, my pediatrician, Dr. Sawyer, used to look in my pants every year and say, just checking to make sure everything is normal. I imagine an exam and imagine him imagining it with me. He listens with his ear on my chest and back, and when it is time to look in my pants, he stares and says, it's not just normal, it's extraordinary. A glowing radiance has just burst from between my legs and is bathing him in converting rays of glory when he comes hurrying out of the doctor's room from across the station. He drops his clipboard and apologizes to no one in particular and glances at me as he straightens up. I want, to make him, I want him to smile and look away, to duck his head in an all-shucks gesture, but he just nods stiffly and walks away. I watch him pass around the corner, then give the lazy Susan a hard spin. If my own chart comes to rest before my eyes, it will mean that he loves me. See the monkey. He has chronic kidney doom. His kidneys are always yearning towards things, other monkeys and trees and peoples and different varieties of fruit. He feels them stirring in him and pressing against his flank whenever he gets near to something that he likes. When he tells a girl monkey or a boy monkey that his kidneys want to hug him, they slap him or punch him or kick him in the eye. At night, his kidneys ache wildly. He's always swollen and moist looking. He smells like a toilet because he can only pee when he doesn't want to. And every night he asks himself, how many pairs of crisp white slacks can one monkey ruin? Suffer, monkey, suffer. Every fourth night he is on call. He stays in the hospital from six in the morning until six the following evening, awake all night on account of the various intern-sized crises. I see him walking in and out of the rooms or peering at the two-foot-long flow sheets that lean on giant clipboards on the walls by every door, or looking solemnly at the nurses as they castigate him for slights against their patients or their honor, an unsigned order, an incorrectly dosed medication, the improper washing of his hands. I catch him in the corridor in what I think is a posture of despair, sunk down outside Wayne's door with his face and his knees, and I think that he has heard about me and Wayne, and it's broken his heart but I've already dismissed Wayne days ago. We were like two IV poles passing in the night, I told him. <laughs> Dr. Chandra is sleeping, not despairing, not snoring, but breathing loud through his mouth. I step a little closer to him, close enough to smell him, coffee and hair gel and something like pickles. The flow sheet lies discarded beside him, so from where I stand, I can see how much Wayne has peed in the last 12 hours. I stoop next to him and consider sitting down and falling asleep myself because I know it would constitute a sort of intimacy to mimic his posture and let my shoulder touch his shoulder, to close my eyes and maybe share a dream with him. But before I can sit, Nancy comes creeping down the hall in her socks, a barf basin half full of warm water in her hands. A phalanx of nurses appears in the hall behind her, each of them holding a finger to her lips. As Nancy kneels next to Dr. Chandra, puts the bucket on the floor, and takes his hand away from his leg so gently, I think she's going to kiss it before she puts it in the water. I just stand there, afraid that he'll wake up as I'm walking away and think I'm responsible for the joke. Nancy and the nurses all disappear around the corner to the station, so it's just me and him again in the hall. I drum my fingers against my head, trying to think of a way to get us both out of this, and realize it's just a step or two to the dietary cart. I take a straw and kneel down next to him, 
It's a lot of volume, and I imagine as I drink that it's flavored by his hand. When I throw it up later, it seems like the best barf I've ever done, because it was for him. And as Nancy holds my hair back for me and asks me what possessed me to drink so much water at once, I think to him, it was for you, baby, and feel both pathetic and exalted. I follow around for a couple of call nights, not saving him again from any more mean-spirited jokes, but catching him scratching or picking when he thinks no one is looking, and wanting like a fool to be the hand that scratches or the finger that picks, because it would be so interesting and gratifying to touch him like that or touch him in any way, and I wonder and wonder what I'm doing as I creep around with increasing practiced nonchalance, looking bored while I sit across from him, listening to him cajole the radiologist on the phone at one in the morning when I could be sleeping or riding my pole, when he's strange-looking and cannot like me and talks funny and is rumored to be an intern of small brains. But I see him stand in the hall for five minutes staring at an abandoned tricycle, and he puts his palm against a window and bows his head at the blinking lights on the bridge in a way that makes me want very much to know what he is thinking. And I see him from a hiding place behind a bin full of dirty sheets, hopping up and down in a hall he thinks is empty, save for him, and I'm sure he is trying to fly away. Hiding on his fourth call night in the dirty utility room while he putters with a flow sheet at the door to the room across the hall, I realize that it could be easier than this, and so when he's moved on, I go back to my room and watch the meditation channel for a little while, then practice a few moans, sounding at first too distressed, then not distressed enough, and then finally getting it just right before I push the button for the nurse. Nancy is off tonight, it's Jory who comes, who finds me moaning and clutching at my belly. I get Tylenol and a touch of morphine, but I'm careful to moan only a little less. So Jory calls Dr. Chandra to come evaluate me. It's romantic in its way. The lights are low, and he puts his warm, freshly washed hands on my belly to push in every quadrant around light palpation, then around it deep. He speaks very softly, asking me if it hurts more here or here or here. I'm going to press in, your, in on your stomach and hold my hand there for a second, and I want you to tell me if it makes it feel better or worse when I let go. He listens to my belly, then takes me by the ankle, extending and flexing my hip. I don't know, I say, when he asks if that made the pain better or worse. Do it again. <laughs> See the bunny. She has high colonic ruin, a very fancy disease. Only bunnies from the very best families get it, but when she cries bloody tears and the terrible spiders come crawling out of her bottom, she would rather be poor. And not even her fancy robot bed can comfort her or even distract her. When her electric pillow feeds her dreams of happy bunnies playing in the snow, she only feels jealous and sad and she bites her tongue while she sleeps and bleeds all night while the bed dabs at her lips with cotton balls on long steel fingers. In the morning, a servant drives her to the potty club where she sits with other wealthy bunny girls on a row of crystal toilets. They're supposed to be her friends, but she doesn't like them at all. Suffer, bunny, suffer. When he visits, I straighten up, carefully hiding the books that Margaret brought me, biographies of Sappho, and Billie Jean King in HD. <laughs> she entered quietly into my room, closed the door, and drew the blinds before producing them from out of her pants and repeating that my secret was safe with her, though there was no need for it to be a secret and nothing to be ashamed of, and she would support me as fully in proclaiming my homosexuality as she did in the hiding of it. 
She's already conceived of a banner to put over my bed, a rainbow hung with stars on the day that I put away all shame and dark feelings. I hide the books because I know all would really be lost if he saw them and assumed the assumption. I do not want to be just his young lesbian friend. I lay out refreshments, spare cookies and juices and puddings from the meal trays that have come, though I get all the food I can stand from the sauce. I don't have many dates on the outside. Rumors of my scarred belly or my gastrostomy tube drive most boys away before anything can develop. And the only boys that pay persistent attention to me are the creepy ones looking for a freak. I had better luck in here with boys like Wayne, but those dates are still outside the usual progressions, the talking more and more until you are convinced they actually know you, and the touching more and more until you are pregnant and wondering if this guy ever liked you. There is nothing normal about my midnight tryst with Dr. Chandra, but there is an order about them too, and a progression. I summon him, and he puts his hands on me, and he orders an intervention, and he comes back to see if it worked or didn't. For three nights, he stands there watching me for a few moments, leaning on one foot and then on the other, before he asks me if I need anything else. All the things I need flash through my mind, but I say no, and he leaves, promising to come back and check on me later, but never doing it. Then, on the fourth night, he does his little dance and asks, what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, when you're bigger, when you're out of school, and all that. Medicine, I say, pediatrics, what else? Aren't you sick of it, he asks. He's backing toward the door, but I have this feeling like he's stepping closer to the bed. Maybe, but I have to do it. You could do anything you want, he says, not sounding like he means it. What else could Tarzan become except Lord of the Jungle, he say. He could have been a dancer if he wanted, or an ice cream man, whatever he wanted. Did you ever want to do anything else besides this, I asked him. Never, no, not ever. How about now? Oh, he says, oh no, I don't think so, no. I don't think so. He startles when his pager vibrates. He looks down at it. I've got to go. Just tell Jory if the pain comes back again. Come over here for a second, I say. I've got to tell you something. Later, he says. No, now it'll just take a second. I expect him to leave, but he walks over and stands near the bed. What? Would you like some juice, I ask him. <laughs> Though what I really meant to do was accuse him ever so sweetly of being the same as me, of knowing the same indescribable thing about this place and about the world. How about a cookie, I say. No thanks, he says. As he passes through the door, I call out for him to wait and to come back. What, he says again, and I think I am just about to know how to say it when the code bell begins to chime. It sounds like an ice cream truck, but it means someone on the floor is trying to die. He jumps in the air like he's been goosed, then takes a step one way in the hall, stops, starts the other way, and goes back. So it looks like he's trying to decide whether to run toward the emergency or away from it. I get up and follow him down the hall, just in time to see him run into Ella Thim's room. From the back of the crowd at the door, I can see him standing at the head of the bed, looking depressed and indecisive, a bag mask held up in his hand. He asks someone to page the senior resident, then puts the mask over Ella's face. She's bleeding from her nose and mouth and from her ostomy sites. The blood shoots around inside the mask when he squeezes the bag, and he can't seem to get a tight seal over Ella's chin. The mask keeps slipping while the nurses ask him what he wants to do. Well, he says, um, how about some oxygen? Nancy finishes getting Ella hooked up to the monitor and points out that she's in a bad rhythm. Let's get her some fluid, he says. Nancy asks if he wouldn't like to shock her instead. Well, he says, maybe. Then I get pushed aside by the PICU team, called from the other side of the hospital by the chiming of the ice cream bell. 
they tend to ask Dr. Chandra what's going on, and he turns even redder and says something that I can't hear because I'm being pushed farther and farther away from the door as more people squeeze past me to cluster around the bed, ring after ring of saviors and spectators. Pushed back to the nursing station, I am standing in front of Jory, who is sitting by the telephone reading a magazine. Hey, honey, she says, not looking at me. Are you doing okay? See the catch. He has died. Feline leukemic indecisiveness is always terminal. Now he just lies there. You can pick him up, go ahead. Bring him home and put him under your pillow and pray to your parents or your stuffed plush Jesus to bring him back and say to him, come back, come back. He will, he will be smellier in the morning, but no more alive. Maybe he is in a better place. Maybe his illness could not follow him where he went, or maybe everything is the same, same pain in a different place. Maybe there is nothing at all where he is. I don't know, and neither do you. Goodbye, cat. Goodbye. Ella Thims died in the PICU, killed. It was discovered by too much potassium in her sauce. It put her heart into that bad rhythm that they couldn't get her out of, though they worked over her till dawn. She'd been in it for at least a while before she was discovered, so it was already too late when they put her on the bypass machine. It made her dead alive. Her blood was moving in her, but by mid-morning the next day, she was rotting inside. Dr. Chandra, it, it was determined, was the chief architect of the fuck-up, assisted by a newly graduated nurse who meticulously verified the poisonous contents of the solution and delivered them without comment. Was there any deadlier combination? People asked each other all morning than an idiot intern and a clueless nurse. I spend the morning one on my IV pole riding the big circle around the ward. It's strange to be out here in the daylight and in the busy morning crowd, less busy today and a little hushed because of the death. I go slower than usual riding like my grandma would, stepping and pushing leisurely with my left foot and stopping often to let the team go by. They pass like a family of ducks, the attending followed by the fellow resident and students all in a row with the lollygagging nutritionist bringing up the rear. Pulmonary renal neurosurgery, even the hypoglycemia team are about in the halls, but I don't see the GI team anywhere. The rest of the night I lie awake in bed waiting for them to come round on me. I can see it already, everyone getting a turn to kick Dr. Chandra outside my door, or Dr. Snood standing casually with his foot on Dr. Chandra's neck as the team discussed my latest ins and outs. Or maybe he wouldn't even be there, maybe they send you home early when you kill someone. Or maybe he, just, he would just run and hide somewhere. Not sleeping, I still dreamed about him huddled in a linen closet, sucking on the corner of a blanket, or sprawled on the bathroom floor, knocking his head softly against the toilet, or kneeling naked in the medication room, shooting up with Benadryl and morphine. I went to him in every place and put my hands on him with great tenderness, never saying a thing, just nodding at him like I knew how horrible everything was. A couple of rumors float around in the late morning. He's jumped from the bridge. He's thrown himself under a trolley. Ella's parents finally come to visit, have killed him. He's retired back home to Virginia in disgrace. I add and, and subtract details. He took off his clothes and folded them neatly on the sidewalk before he jumped. The trolley was full of German choir boys. Ella's father choked him while her mother stabbed. His feet hang over the end of his childhood bed in Virginia. I don't stop even to get my meds. Nancy trots beside me and, I, and pushes them on the fly. 
just after that, around one o'clock, I understand that I am following after something, and that I had better speed up if I am going to catch it. It seems to me, who should really know better, that all the late new sadness of the past 24 hours ought to count for something, ought to do something, ought to change something inside of me or outside in the world, but I don't know what it is that might change, and I expect that nothing will change. Children have died here before, and hapless idiots have come and gone, and always the next day the sick still come to languish and be poked, and they will lie in bed, hoping not for healing, a thing which the wise have all long given up on, but for something to make them feel better, just for a little while. And sometimes they get this thing, and often they do not. I think of my animals and hear them all, not just the cat, but the whole bloated menagerie, crying and crying, make it stop. Faster and faster and faster, not even a grieving shortcut girl can be forgiven for speed like this. People are thinking, she loved that little girl, but I am thinking, I will never see him again. Still, I almost forget I am chasing something and not just flying along for the exhilaration it brings. Nurses and students and even the proudest attendings try to leap out of the way, but only arrange themselves into a slalom course. It's my skill, not theirs, that keeps them from being struck. Nancy tries to stand in my way to stop me, but she wimps away to the side long before I get anywhere near her. Doctors and visiting parents and a few other kids, and finally a couple of security guards, one almost fat enough to block the entire hall, try to arrest me, but they all fail. And I can hardly even hear what they are shouting. I am concentrating on the window. It's off the course of the circle at the end of a hundred-foot hall that runs past the playroom and the picu. It's a portrait frame of the near tower of the bridge, which looks very orange today against the bright blue sky. It's part of the answer when I understand that I am running the circle to rev up for a run down to the window. Now, window that right now seems like the only way out of this place. The fat guard and Nancy and a parent have made themselves into a roadblock just beyond the turn into the hall. They are stretched like a red rover line from one wall to the other. And two of them, two of them close their eyes but don't break as I come near them. I make the fastest turn in my life and head away down the hall. It's Miss Margaret who stops me. She steps out of the playroom with a crate of blocks in her arms, sees me, looks down the hall toward the window, and shrieks, motherfucker. <laughs> I would stand the uncharacteristic obscenity, though it makes me stumble. But when the blocks she casts in my path form an obstacle, I cannot pass them. There are 20 of them or more. As I try to avoid them, I am reading the letters thinking they'll spell out the name of the thing I am chasing, but I am too slow to read any of them except the farthest one in R and the red Q that catches under my wheel. I fall off the pole as it goes flying forward, skidding toward the window after I come to a stop on my belly outside the PICU, my central line coming out in a pole as sift and, and clean as a tooth pulled out with a string and a door. The end of the catheter sails in an arc through the air, scattering drops of blood against the ceiling, and I think how neat it would look if my heart had come out, still attached to the tip. And what a distinct once-in-a-lifetime noise it would have made when it hit the floor. Thanks a lot.
questions to ask. Uh, yes. Repeat the question just because uh, there's a recorder. Um, uh, in the gist of the question was um, uh, how uh, um, how one how does one go about uh, um, uh, when trying to imagine the interior life of a patient, especially for the sake of writing about them? Um, uh, do you um, what is the what is that process like? Does it involve talking to a patient, um, or does it just go on inside your your head? Um, I think 10 years ago when I wrote this story, it was not something um, that I ever, uh, when, I, when I thought about things like this, I didn't talk to patients about them. I rarely even talked to fellow um, trainees or uh, senior doctors or anybody about them. The process of, uh, of my writing process back then involved a lot of, involved very, most often going home post-call. Um, and sitting in this funny little closet um, uh, that I had my computer in uh, and writing until I uh, um, fell asleep and had a long line of Z's and Q's and R's on the computer screen. Um, but there was, uh, oddly, there was something um, about, uh, especially if it was a, um, uh, a harrowing call night for whatever reason. There was some something about getting home and getting to write, even if it wasn't, even if it was about a, you know, a, a magic pony with a sexual identity crisis, not something about the uh, hospital at all, that, um, uh, that made it um, uh, easier to actually fall asleep eventually. Um, uh, so it was all very private um, back then, and I tried to, I, I think I, it did cross my mind even back then that I'm writing about actual people, um, uh, and I um, uh, always tried to be careful to convince myself that um, that I was writing that when I what came out on the page was a combination of people, patients, other doctors that no one would recognize as themselves if they read it, um, or that I was writing so much about the idea of a person than that person themselves that they also would not um, wouldn't recognize themselves and therefore wouldn't object um, to however they were represented. Um, uh, so that was was uh, when it was a while ago when I was an intern. And um, I think I've probably written less and less directly about hospital experiences as time has gone on, um, though they did creep in significantly to the uh, last um, novel, which is a, a retelling of A Midsummer Night's Dream set in one of us to park. But uh, there's a character who's central to the story who was based very much on the family, uh, on a child and a family that I met. Um, and when I, in the course of writing that story, um, I did end up um, Talking to those parents, not to uh, not so much to ask them questions um, like, "Am I getting this right?" Um, because that seemed like it seems like such an impertinent question to ask in in, in fiction, um, uh, or such a funny question uh, to ask in that context. I think it's a fundamentally important question um, uh, to ask as a physician: "Am I getting all sorts of things right of your patients?" But I couldn't imagine asking, am I getting this fictional representation of you uh, right? Um, but what I did ask them was, um, was is it okay to, uh, to actually to publish this? Um, because when you read it, you're gonna recognize your little girl in something incredibly distinctive and charming and wonderful. Um, 
and heartbreaking that she said, uh, and that thing that she said gave rise to a whole story that was important to the novel. Um, and I asked them that um, and, and uh, tried to make it as plain as I could that no was a perfectly fine answer and I would figure something else out for, um, um, uh, for, uh, for the story that as excited as I was about the story, um, it mattered. Um, it would not make any, my excitement about the story um, uh, mattered not at all um, compared to uh, the barest whiff of anxiety this might produce for them. Um, and they were, and you know, part of what was inspiring about them was that they were enormously, um, uh, that they were, had this sort of tremendous grace about them um, uh, and had a bearing about them that uh, uh, made me, um, uh, that, that made words like regal um, come to mind describing them, and that was part of why they ended up in a story about Titania and Oberon, um, but with characteristic grace, um, they uh, said it would be uh, perfectly fine. Um, and the dad ended up reading the story, um, and I told the mom, um, this is a, a pretty little story, but I don't think you should read it until our daughter um, comes home from prom. I think when, by then it will be safe to read it, um, because uh, he thought it would be um, uh, uh, upsetting in a way that, um, uh, uh, that would um, uh, that would not um, that is as uh, is, is interesting as interested as she was in the idea that um, he asked her to trust her that it would um, uh, that it would be a, ultimately an unpleasant experience for her. Um, so I guess the short answer to all that is that at one point um, uh, I think as a when I wrote as a very young trainee um, uh, the answer was no I didn't involve other patients and that. Uh, as I've, uh, and that the attending answer, um, uh, um, if I can say that, is that it's, um, I think it's, it's complicated enough that I feel obligated to, um, that if I ever write about it, um, uh, do end up writing about a patient, I feel obligated to get them involved um, somehow um, by means of actual conversation. Um, Um, so pediatrics I, was actually the last thing I thought I would do. Um, my med school was nice enough to let me um, take some time off to finish my first novel, and, but they asked me, you, you need to pick a, um, one, a, a core rotation that you're not, and, and you probably should pick one that you're not really interested in to defer until fourth year. And I said, well, I don't really like children. Um, <laughs> they me. Um, so I'll do pediatrics as a fourth year because I, I know for sure I want to be a psychiatrist or a family practice doctor. Um, and, had, and didn't, you know, as much as I liked psychiatrists and kind of practice doctors, I felt like I was, they were totally the wrong place for me, so I was immensely sad by the time uh, it came time to do pediatrics. I was so sure I wouldn't like it and that I would end up being one of those physicians who do a practice medicine and don't really like it, and everybody can tell. Um, uh, but I fell in love with pediatrics, um, in I think in large part because I discovered I actually like kids. Um, and, but also because of the people. Um, the pediatricians were generally happy, which seemed kind of, I did it pediatrics after OB-GYN. Um, uh, and um, the, the residents at least were so um, beaten down um, uh, that it was uh, uh, hard to see, it was rare to see them 
in good moods. Uh, they were pediatricians were also really nice to each other, um, which I didn't also didn't see um, uh, physicians always being that nice to each other as a med student. Um, so the combination of them, of everyone seeming so happy in the specialty and feeling like this was a way, that I actually wanted to work with kids and this was a way to uh, get to work with them, not knowing if I would ever have kids myself, um, kind of clinched the deal. Um, and in pediatric oncology was a similar kind of surprise. We all have to, at UCSF at least, we all had to, they sort of, they do this weird thing where they say, um, uh, we, you know, we, uh, we, um, think it's really important for you to have electives, um, but uh, but these are the electives that you have to do. Um, so everyone ends up, even though uh, oncology is uh, ostensibly an elective, everybody has to do six weeks of it in their second year. And I, uh, I thought I would be frightened and miserable um, on that ward, and I, I was frightened. I was occasionally miserable, but I uh, also was thrilled, um, was fascinated by the medicine, and then most of all was really um, compelled by the depth of relationship between these physicians and their patients uh, and their patients' parents. Um, uh, and the idea of having that intense uh, uh, connection with a family um, while getting to practice really exciting, challenging medicine um, was at least intellectually what um, clinched that for me. Also, they all, they all seem like really neat people, a little cuckoo. Uh, in many ways, um, uh, but also cuckoo in a way that was really endearing, uh, or maybe trust them more, um, not less. Um, uh, so uh, that, and that is, I think that initial um, uh, attraction has gotten compl more complicated as I actually got to do it. Six weeks is one thing, and then when you, but then when you're doing it for a whole year as a first-year fellow, um, pretty intensely, um, you, you have to reconsider and. I think most people go through a time where they question uh, or sort of have to reconsolidate their commitment to the field. Um, uh, and, but when I recommitted, I think that it ended up being, that it was all kind of pretty similar reasons again. Uh, and probably the biggest change was understanding how difficult um, uh, or painful that connection can be at the same time that it's uh, uh, really restorative. Um, one of my uh, research projects as a fellow was to go around asking um, all the attendees in my department the same five questions about, um, for lack of a better word, word, the psychosocial care we provide for patients as, uh, or that they provide as attendees. And the conversation, even though it wasn't necessarily meant to go that way, for all of them eventually drifted to what kept them or sustained them in the specialty or why, how they answered that cocktail party, party question that everybody always gets. Well, they, they, people, when you tell people, people ask what you do and you tell them and they, they, they generally either notice a friend on the other side of the room and walk away or, um, uh, or ask, uh, that sounds really difficult, how do you do that? And the, but that cocktail party question that everybody ended up answering for this study, um, they, uh, almost a surprising number of them got to this place that was hard for them to describe, hard for me to even help them describe where the uh, thing that made it, the thing that was most difficult about the work was also what was most sustaining about it. Um, uh, and it was neat to hear them all uh, try and articulate that way, though it didn't necessarily help any of us come up with a, uh, a way to really discreetly um, articulate it. Awesome. Thank you. I just have two more comments and then we'll have time afterwards. Uh, one here and then I'm wondering how you find the time to maintain 
part of that um, uh, is, uh, this will sound funny to the trainees in the room, but part of that is it comes as what I, I think of as the, the luxury of having been a trainee for so long. Yeah. Um, the trainees will be surprised to hear there are any luxuries involved. Um, but uh, um, uh, I, I was an attending very briefly after residency and uh, just uh, doing urgent care um, in an emergency room. Um, but aside from those two years, I've been either in, in, in med school or a resident or a fellow or in divinity school um, for the past 10 years. And um, though there's lots of work involved with those variety of, uh, of, um, uh, of enterprises, uh, there's not the, the responsibility ultimately. Um, I was never the final, um, the per even though you know, we were all trained and encouraged to act as if we're um, ultimately responsible for our patients, but when it came time to try and do something else or add a new thing into the mix, um, uh, um, career-wise, uh, what what ultimately allowed me to do it was there was somebody I could go to who was willing to take ultimate responsibility for my uh, uh, for patient for my patients um, and handle things while I was gone. Um, so it's all due to other people being really generous to me. And, being, uh, and, and to them, to the higher-ups who've been in charge of me always um, being really open-minded about what this is all going to add up to and, and being able to convince myself and, and them that um, one day whatever I was doing was, was going to make me a better physician. Um, and so that's all. Now that I you know, um, uh, 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 happily am, am all done with training finally, but I'm also con considerably terrified uh, just because um, now I'll need to find a, um, uh, a, a real actual job someplace where where I can do all this stuff, and that'll be I think a, a good bit harder. Though I did the, the the phase where I thought about, oh I'll just find someplace else to go to school. Um, <laughs> that thankfully only lasted about seven minutes. Come, come talk to me later. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you wrote this ten years ago. Uh, I imagine there was some space of time where you didn't read it at all. How was it as you reread all of those years later? Did you find that your emotional responses changed, enhanced, developed, you felt more distant from the person you were when you wrote that? Because you, there's a lot of very powerful, charged things in the story. How, how was it as a reader? Um, uh, I have to think when the last time I read this. Well, I read, I read this pre for um, a previous Grand Rounds presentation, actually, at San Francisco General, um, where they, you know, they kind of have their Grand Rounds are a little swing in there. Uh, um, they tend to, um, uh, it's not all just PowerPoint. Um, uh, but that was a while ago, too. That was, gee, four years ago. Um, uh, so it was actually a little bit surprising to, to see it again. And I think what, um, uh, probably the most striking thing is what makes me think of that particular patient. Um, but um, more than that, I think there's, uh, I think this is, may, may tie back to that first question about the way, um, uh, the way things have changed just in terms of how I approach patients imaginatively. Um, but there does, um, I think that the, uh, the idea of writing about a, a patient uh, to whom you felt uh, as a young trainee, you owed some kind of debt because of a mistake you made. In this um, uh, patient's case, the one that inspired the story was, wasn't a medical, um, it, it was a medical mistake, but it wasn't a, um, a mistake that involved a miscalculation or a wrong dose. It was what I considered a violation of trust. 
um, uh, but uh, which I which so I don't think it's quite right to not characterize that as a, as a medical mistake, but it didn't uh, put her in any physical danger. Um, but the idea of uh, trying to ameliorate that by uh, um, by writing a story in which she wouldn't really, which, which I didn't mean for her to recognize herself by any means, because I worried so much that any degree of that would, uh, even in the sort of hypothetical imaginary situation, any degree of recognition would lead, inevitably, would lead, any risk of it leading to her thinking I was mocking her and making fun of her would be uh, completely devastating. and. Um, uh, and I couldn't imagine um, it, it feels like that with like, something like that would could shut down your imagination permanently in an enterprise like this. But the idea of her reading it and saying um, either that is related to the way that things really are for me, the way that the head of a coin, uh, the head on a coin, is related to a real head, even if it were that sort of off the mark, even getting it just a tiny bit right felt like the appropriate kind of um, uh, uh, penance is to um, overheated a word to use, but I mean something along that line. And the, uh, and the and sort of more realistically or more, um, and, and somewhat less overheatedly, the idea of writing, uh, writing her as the sort of, uh, uh, as a, a character who was fully imagined in a way that, um, uh, that would brook no um, uh, none, none of the criticism of uh, of this particular patient that I heard on the wards, which basically just gave very short shrift to what was going on inside of her head and reduced her to a uh, um, a set of um, not just a set of symptoms, but um, but a one particular symptom or one particular problem. Um, uh, the idea of creating somebody who, when faced with that, would be completely immune to it or could sort of emotionally destroy the people who dare to think of her that way uh, felt more like the, um, uh, it felt very much like the right thing to do imaginatively to make up for the thing that I thought he had done wrong. And this is all you know, going on, it, this is all just sort of the ways of me figuring out a way to feel less bad about myself as, a, uh, as an, uh, an intern and get up and go back to work. Um, uh, so uh, that was then, and, I, and reading this now, I think I'm reminded of that, that that was the idea. And it seems very, you know, it seems um, a little uh, um, uh, cheeky or um, impertinent um, and sort of borders on disrespectful in a way that I, um, again, that's the wrong word, it's a little too charged. Um, but it's, uh, but I think that, um, I don't know that I would, uh, I, don't, I don't think I would write that way about it is a little different from the way that I um, write about patients for the same reasons. Now, the last, um, the novel that uh, Midsummer Night's Dream novel has that long has a long section about parents dealing with the death of a child, and that the flavor of that is very different from this. Um, uh, it, um, but it is the, it's the a lot of it came out of the same place, wanting to do justice to, um, in fiction to what somebody was, was going through that I felt like I could never understand but felt but needed to try. Um, and it, um, uh, it's, um, it happens in a different, in a key that's a little more laid back and reserved um, than, um, than this. So the short answer is um, that this, reading this makes my 
uh, hair stand on end a little bit in a way that, um, that stuff that I have done recently doesn't. Thank you.